our podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast, Life Fantastic, where people with disabilities talk about all things related to disability here on Straight Independent Radio. I'm your host, Samantha Pierce, the Idea Dynamo. We are sponsored by neurodiversityconsulting.org and sanchia.org. Check us out online to find out all the great things we do with people with disabilities. I'm joined today by my usual crew, Scott Davis, disabled advocate, speaker, and writer, Liza Citron, autistic disabled advocate and future special education teacher, and Dr. Jeremy Pierce, philosopher extraordinaire, and my co-parent. Now, this episode, we're, we're recording it at the beginning, it's about the middle of September, and just about everywhere across the country, students are back in the classroom, or at least several, several districts had students back in the classroom before they had to shut down for COVID and, and other things. Here in Syracuse, and in fact, in Onondaga County, where Syracuse is, we've seen an uptick in disruptions, violence in school buildings, particularly the high schools. And it's really, it's really disturbing to watch. It's like the students are imploding, the teachers are imploding, the leadership is imploding. And the conversation is about how are we going to help reestablish a functioning learning environment for our students. Now, in the middle of all of this, students with disabilities who receive special education services are kind of being pushed by the wayside like they were like the whole time during the pandemic. The New York State Controller recognizes that students receiving special education services essentially went without education for a whole year and more. So the, well, the conversation for me, the conversation that I want to have is how do we get students back to having access to those educational resources? And again, how do we reestablish a functioning learning environment for students and school staff? So Jeremy, you are, you're my co-parent and you've been walking alongside me and also alongside our kids as we deal with everybody going back to in-person learning in their school buildings. Tell me a little bit about your perspective on how things are going. Well, I mean, the one that we've had the most trouble with is not related to any of these issues. They just can't get her schedule right. So, I mean, that's really the thing that I've been, or they, or they wanna do sports and they can't seem to find the forms. One, they lost the form and we know they had it because she played a sport last year and it was the same health medical form that she would have had for that one. So we know they had it at some point, they just lost it. So there's certainly some organizational issues as things are starting up. Apparently the high schools all had some computer generated schedules for every student. No person looked at it to verify that it would fit their needs. So there's certainly some organizational things going on, uh, but uh, they all seem excited to be there. They're happy to be in person. And our kids don't seem to be worried about 
any of the stuff that I hear other parents talking about. So it, it's our kids are, are seem like things are going great for the most part and, and happy to be there. Now, for for my part, <laughs> I find that having to deal with the 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 disorganization in the school buildings um, very concerning. I'm really thankful that the one kiddo with a disability that we still have in the school has a teacher who seems to be on top of things and doing the best that they can, even when the, they're not getting clear communication and clear leadership, um, they're still doing their best to pull things together. So that tells me that there are a lot of teachers who are really stressed and having to do a lot of extra work because there's so much disorganization. And again, bringing it back to students with special education services, these kids seem to be flying under the radar. The, the parents that I'm talking about from across Onondaga County, parents that I'm talking with from across Onondaga County are talking about how their students are literally forgotten at school, literally forgotten at school, as in nobody knows where they were and nobody thought to look for them. So these are these are issues that you know they've been issues before and they continue to be even bigger issues now as we go back into the classrooms and there's all this disorganization and nobody really knows what's going on and information isn't really flowing to families about what kind of precautions are being taken for covid what the situation is in the buildings or in the students classrooms with COVID infection rates. Liza, what have you been hearing from uh, families and students and what are you seeing in, in media about what's going on in classrooms, particularly for students receiving special education services? Well, a lot of it is what you've said, teachers having to do what they can with lack of organization, resources, et cetera. And this isn't something that is just limited to the Syracuse area. I mean, I have friends who, or acquaintances who are teachers all across. I, one of them lives somewhere in the Southwest or something. And the same things are becoming issues for her. She's specifically in specialized and that's basically it. The lack of guidance in terms of COVID, the lack of guidance in terms of what exactly do we do for these students? How do we implement their services while we are dealing with all these other things going on? And then, of course, I think, I don't know whether you <laughs> are willing to mention here, Sam, the, was it a was the text or a phone call that you got? Oh, yes, that. So one of the things that opened up the school year for us is that a staff member at one of our kids' schools chose to utilize a communication platform uh, meant to help connect students and classroom teachers, students' families and classroom teachers, to send out information, factually incorrect information about COVID and masks and the ability of children to be sickened by COVID. That was the opening of the school year. 
that was the night before classes started and yeah and there is something to be said for acknowledging that about so 12 year old let's say would be in about fifth grade so almost half of the population of uh, of elementary, junior high, and secondary schools, if you disregard any higher population that might be in a certain grade, almost half of those that population is of an age where they can't be vaccinated. So I think that guidance for them, regardless of not getting into what exactly is needed in terms of that guidance because that's just going to get us people <laughs> saying you know that that that's not right that's not so not getting into that right now but the figuring out what exactly to do and how exactly to structure classrooms and teachers need guidance for that that's not exactly something that they can figure out on their own and standardization is needed as well across schools, but it seems as though a lot of the time teachers find themselves without that. Yeah. Especially elementary school teachers. There has, there has been a, one of the common complaints by classroom teachers and district leaders here in New York State is the lack of guidance coming from the governor's office, the lack of guidance coming from the New York state department of education now I, I i must stipulate that our former governor resigned <laughs> rather recently so we're, we're breaking in a new governor here in new york but prior to that the guidance coming to school districts was it wasn't there they weren't getting a message from uh, the State Department of Education or from the governor's office about how to proceed protecting and educating our students. And that trickled down to the districts not communicating with their staff and with families about how to protect and educate students. So there's a real breakdown in communication. And as we usually see with, with families of students receiving special education services, families are out on a limb trying to advocate for themselves mm -hmm. and their students and getting the runaround. And then of course we have parents, not parents, parents being told, well, if you're not confident in the measure being put in place at school, or if you're not confident in what's being done with your child at school, well, bring them home and homeschool them. And I think it's important to acknowledge that there are families who would want nothing more than to be able to do that, but they can't because they're not in the position to. So being met with that answer, well, you have this option available, do you, why don't you take it, is just, can be very, very callous and very, very, seemingly unaware of the complexities in the situation and families who would want to do everything they could to do that but can't don't i think deserve to be met with that as a response 
rather than trying to sort out the inadequacies and the issues within the school system itself. And there is also the issue of families being told that they have to accept what they're being given mm -hmm. by schools, by, you know, for in terms of special education services. And that's not actually the case. Yep, like, hey, at least you're getting this. Yeah, no. students are entitled to a free and appropriate education in the least restrictive environment. environment. That does not include a school or school district saying, well, this is what you're going to get, take it or leave it. That's not how that works. And it's particularly no, concerning that things like that are still happening, even though there is an influx in cash in many school districts across the state that's meant to help educate students. That's particularly meant to help better educate students receiving special education services. And there are specific cases, legal cases, landmark, that define and stipulate this is what constitutes a FAPE, a free and appropriate public education. So yeah, it's not like you can just say, well, you're getting this, this is what you're gonna have to take. No, there have been cases defining what exactly that is. And if you don't need it, if you're just telling families, this is what you get and you don't need it, then you are violating the law to which these students are, are entitled. Mm -hmm. And across the nation, school districts are having to fight with governors who are politicizing things like wearing masks and getting mm -hmm. vaccines. And there, there are people in power who were basically standing in, in, in the bully pulpit and trying to browbeat districts into not taking appropriate measures to protect staff and protect students and protect families. And this is a, an incredibly toxic environment in which to try to educate students. And we know at, at the quote unquote best of times that students receiving special education services often fall through the cracks. That got even more worse and more apparent as the pandemic progressed. And now we're at a point where our leaders are fighting with the leaders in the school districts to stop them from taking precautions to protect students. And it also and puts it also puts barriers between teachers when all that they would need to do, what they need is to come together and be united, have the same goals, etc. But because these things have become political tactics rather than actual needs, oftentimes, it just divides them. I mean, I'm not going to name names, but I've certainly had that happen with multiple friends of mine who are somewhere in the education field or disability field. Yeah, I, uh, if, if I can join in. Go right ahead, Scott. You were my next stop. <laughs> yes, just so it's not. Obviously, only thing I've seen in, in Connecticut is there are, they have resumed the uh, services for those who have graduated from their 
education, but still have uh, eligibility to get some more services where they're doing the community engagement programs. I've noticed that's resumed at the gym, but I've also been back since school year ended. So it may have happened last year. Also, one thing I've noticed is in the paper, there's been a lot of talk about resources that pertain to those, maybe not disabilities. It might, I don't know about that, but even those with different COVID levels, uh, they're not all getting the same services. And I'm sure that pertains to disability. Some person, I don't have all of the facts in my head, but they, they aren't getting equitable when we're talking about fair and equitable. And that was one of my thoughts. I was yeah. going to explore, but it's, it's, and also I'm just thinking about when I was a student, obviously not in COVID era, that was ancient history back then, wasn't history. But if you take a look at even when you tried to keep your own possessions and, and people were uh, taking my, my uh, notebook or pen or pencil, they were playing political football. It could be an illustration. To now you're trying to get these students and these teachers and parents something that's gonna help these students become adults later on, functioning adults. And then they're put into this mix. Yeah. Just, to clarify for just to clarify for listeners, while a free and appropriate public education of faith is equitable, that is not what it stands for. It is free, appropriate public education. So while a faith is all of those things that you described, it that is not directly in the name. It's supposed to be equitable. Yes. And as Scott pointed out, equity is missing. It has been missing and it continues to be missing from education for many students, yep. especially for students who are receiving special education services. And then and there's, there's the, a, go ahead. There's the illustration of also putting steps on so that they're all on a level playing field, but then how do you measure what, how are you trying to make them all equitable? And that leads us to looking, you know, what are some of the ways that we can address this, this, the inequity in education? Now, before COVID, there were staffing shortages when it came to providing services to people with disabilities. It's even worse now with COVID. One of the issues that we always faced was trying to find staff, direct service providers to work with our kiddos. This is a chronic problem for, for families who have uh, disabled members of the family, trying to find people who can work with them, quality people to work with them. And one of the persistent problems is the lack of appropriate funding for wages for people. Direct service providers are doing a lot of work. It's labor intensive, it's emotionally demanding, but they're, they're not paid in a manner that reflects the level and the quality of the hard work that they put in for the people that they're working with. That's one problem. Another problem is that we have this nationwide shortage of qualified special education teachers. We had that before COVID, that's even more so now. Our kiddos are telling us that one of their teachers that the district took a very long time to find 
resigned in the first week. And you, you don't have to look too far and too hard to find these kinds of stories being told over and over again. There's, there's a situation in a classroom in our region where the special education teacher has never worked with special students receiving special education services before. So again, COVID is exposing all of these issues that were in existence and we're starting to see just how ugly it is and just how hard it has been for families to get a quality education for their students. And it's not just the kids receiving special education services now who are, are struggling. Students in the general education population are also struggling. They're starting to break under the pressures of COVID. And one of the things that we see over and over again, what happens when kids start to break and they, they act out, what happens? Lots of people show up claiming that it's 100% the parents' fault. Jeremy, or that, or that this is why these kids shouldn't like be in these be <clears throat> shouldn't be in 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 inclusion classrooms or we get a lot of that as well. And I, I'm not even talking about the students receiving special education services. I'm talking about the general education students when they break under all of the pressures that are being put on them. You know, mm -hmm. there's, there's always someone who's willing to stand up and say it's 100 the parents' fault, 100% the parents' fault. Jeremy, as a parent, <laughs> what's your take on this tendency to want to blame parents when the system fails their children? I, I haven't experienced that. If, if I have, I don't remember it. But um, at least not in the schools. I, we certainly have encountered that from other people <laughs> about our children. Uh, I mean, I, I think if if teachers, this is kind of a very typical cognitive bias that affects people. Uh, if they if they see that they're doing something with one kid and they're doing the same thing with another kid, and they see it working with one kid and it's not working with another kid, they might they think that it's not what they're doing that's the problem. When it might well be that what they're doing needs to be different with that kid. They can't just think that if it works with another kid, it's gonna work with every kid. And I wonder if that's partly what lies behind this. They think, well, it can't be what I'm doing because what I'm doing works fine with the other kids. Hmm. So it must be something about them. I'm not sure how that gets to the parents though, because what are all the other factors it could be, right? Yeah, that's a great question. What are all the other factors? Uh, I'm just going to come right out and say it. Trying to blame parents is 100% a cop out <laughs> that gets, you know, that gives someone a, a get out of jail free card from actually looking at what all of the complex factors are that are going into students having a breakdown. It's a mess, y'all. It's it's a mess. <laughs> In uh, parents have been, families have been taking it on the chin the entire time during the pandemic, as our children go back to in-person learning, we're still having to deal with the, 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 the breakdown of the system that's supposed to support us and educate our children. And especially for 
students receiving special education services, the system can't handle it. It can't handle them. And even though we're getting an influx of funding in order to educate all of the children, there's still this complete breakdown of the system that is supposed to do that. And it doesn't serve anyone. It doesn't serve the general education students. It has never really served the students receiving special education services. And this continues to be an issue. And, and it's really time for people to think hard and, and carefully about what are the solutions? Why is there a shortage of teachers? Could it be because of a lack of leadership and a lack of support for educators? Not among parents, but the people who are actually their leaders who are supposed to be supporting them and backing them up and advocating for them? Could that be part of the problem? I think so. Could poor working conditions be part of the problem? Why we have a lack of qualified educators working with students with disabilities? Yes, I think so. And no, you can't blame the children for the poor working environment because it's the adults who are supposed to be making a thriving working and learning environment for students and staff. So if, if, if you're out there and it is your inclination to want to blame students or blame parents, that doesn't really help. <laughs> that doesn't get move us toward finding solutions for how to support students and how to support the people who are working with them such that the whole school building isn't literally or figuratively on fire. We've had some literal fires in, in, in school buildings here in Syracuse. And the finger pointing and the casting blame just is not helping. And the students receiving special education services in those buildings, they're not getting the education that they need. Now, I, I want to transition on to another story that is making the news here in New York State. We have the Office of People with Developmental Disabilities that supposed to to manage and serve people with disabilities with their serve with the services that we know that they all need so it's been making the rounds in the news and in the parent groups that the office for people with developmental disabilities opwdd has been sending notices to families telling them that they have to pull their their disabled children, whether they're minors or adults, from their current residential setting and put them into a another setting within New York State in a rather remote location in the Adirondack Mountains, or they're going to lose funding for their services. Now, there's a couple different things going on with this story. The, the out-of-state residential facility that is, that is a common factor here is the Judge Rottenberg Educational Center. And we've talked before about why that place, the JRC, is not a good place for people with developmental disabilities. And we've talked about how it's concerning that New York State is spending money to send New York residents to a place where residents have died and former residents have reported being tortured with electric shock devices. That's one thing. 
So as this story is developing, we're learning that the decision to force families to remove their, their loved ones from the JRC, it's not because people, rec leadership in the state recognizes that JRC is a bad place to be sending New York residents. It's because they want to save money. Well, first of all, that's, there, there are problems with that inherently itself, but the fact that they are not acknowledging in the reason why they're moving these residents, that there are problems with the JRC. And in fact, not acknowledging that there are problems with the JRC and are often framing the JRC as if not positive, neutral would seem to indicate that they see little problem with the methods that are being used and structure that is being used at the JRC and therefore may have a chance of implementing those at the new facility. That That is, that is one concern that um, the leadership in New York State, the leadership at the Office for People with Developmental Disabilities don't recognize the issues with the Judge Wattenberg Center. The other is the location that they're trying to force families mm -hmm. into sending their children to. It's in the Adirondacks, in a remote location in the Adirondacks. I've spent time in the Adirondacks as a, as a college student living in the Adirondacks in a place where you had to take a boat to get there and where the cows outnumbered the people. And this seems really counter to having com the, the principle of having community-based services to care for people with developmental disabilities in their community. And again, this highlights a longstanding problem with the services for people with dis developmental disabilities in that the community-based services and support aren't really there. there it's, it's not a big enough base to serve the needs of people with developmental disabilities. And it also indicates something about the way that the people who are implementing these decisions view disabled people, that they would rather them be somewhere remote and unseen than in the community. And there are a lot of people who think we've moved away from that. This just, this, this decision, in addition to everything else, seems to indicate that we are much, much, much closer to that than many would like to be. And the, just a couple of days ago, the, the state said that it would, it, would, it would not be forcing families out just yet. They were gonna, you know, they're gonna wait for six months. I'm not sure what they're waiting for, but they're gonna wait for six months before they make a final decision on whether or not they're going to force families out of the JRC and into a facility in a remote, remote location in the Adirondacks where there is great concern about the safety of the facility for people with developmental disabilities in that facility. Now, I have mixed feelings about this. I'm glad that, that families aren't being cut off from services, and I'm glad that vulnerable people aren't being forced into another situation 
that could be dangerous for them. But I'm very much concerned that there are still New York State residents who are stuck at the JRC. And for me, this is one of those situations where the voices of disabled people are not given their due weight because people who have come out of the JRC, residents who have come out of the JRC have said, this is not a good place for people with developmental disabilities. They did bad things to me there. I am suffering from the physical and mental wounds that I received in that place. Residents have died at the JRC. So for me, the primary concern about New Yorkers being in the JRC is not how much it costs. It's what are y'all doing to these vulnerable young people that are at this place? And they're people who've been there for 20 years. 20 years. You can't see my face right now, those of you who are listening, but that is heartbreaking. And if they're children, that means they they spent their formative years there and they grew up there and are now adults. There's, I don't know what else to say. Yeah. So it, it uh, go ahead, Scott. I can make my point after you. Yeah, one solution possibly is education. We've been talking about this, whether it's policing or anything. We need to educate. I assume the, I mean, the, the senators and representatives should be aware of it. And if parents that are listening are not doing that, they need to make their voices heard. And also, even though it may not be an issue with accommodation, but you still have to, it's basically, you have to meet the needs of these disabled students and also with the parents and with, with, the, edu with the teachers themselves, because I, growing up I mean, in, in a setting that wasn't always conducive to my learning, I mean, they did the very best I could, I struggled. And if I struggled even before any of these modern technologies or the modern diseases, it must be extremely rough because News is on 24-7 and not just at 5 o'clock mm. or 8 o'clock. Yeah, there, there, there is a sense in which we are, we are overwhelmed by the, the rapid fire information. And many days it's like repeatedly going, oh, good grief, what now? <laughs> not only just rapid fire information, now there's such a divisiveness about, for one, people don't know how to research. So that's a whole other uh, issue. But there's such a divisiveness about what's even true. Mm. And everything is politicized. I've, I've, found, I've found that a lot of the problem is that people often assume they're in a fight. Yes. Rather than in a conversation to problem solve. And there's, one of there's, the- There's something to be said for debate, but there's a very big difference between that and the fight that many people think that they're in. Yeah. And one of the, one of the issues that we need to problem solve is the fact that existing services, existing agencies are not equipped 
to care for individuals with high support needs. They're, frankly, they're ill-equipped to care for, for, for people with disabilities in general. Um, and it's not just because of the staffing shortage, which COVID has exacerbated. Folks, there was a staffing shortage before COVID when it came to providing services to people with developmental disabilities. And as with many of the, the problems with our society, COVID just made it worse. And because everyone was trapped in their houses and they couldn't, they couldn't go anywhere, it became more apparent as more people spoke up about what was happening in their lives. So we have this issue where agencies are, and programs, group homes are understaffed. There's not enough of them. Uh, the people doing like the real boots on the ground, hard work, aren't appropriately compensated for, for the level of care that they're providing. And they're, people, I, I don't know how you get to a point where you're providing services to people with developmental disabilities and you don't have the appropriate training to do that. That's a big issue right there. How do you get into the business of serving people with developmental disabilities, but you don't have the training to serve the actual people with developmental disabilities who are trying to access whatever you offer? What are y'all doing? <laughs> I would assume a lot of it is an appearance thing. People, so the organizations can say that they're providing this many workers, even if those workers are not adequately trained or experienced so that they can, I think a lot of the, a lot of these things now are for appearances sake, for getting people off of their backs more than anything, unfortunately. And that may be a somewhat cynical view, but I really do think that's one of the factors here just so that they don't necessarily have to deal with the court with the the public consequences so you're you're talking essentially about performative service yes rather than actual service like yep. actually doing things that people need actually exactly. providing support that people need yes there is a lot of that and i think a lot of it stems from the value that we place on human lives, mm -hmm. particularly the value that we place on the lives of people with disabilities. And we've talked about this before on the podcast, and there is a, a real concern that especially decision makers especially do not fully recognize the value and the importance of the lives of people with developmental disabilities. And oftentimes it feels like, oh, we'll throw you some crumbs so that you'll leave us alone. Exactly, and, and, and really only base it on, on utility to them. Yeah, which brings me to our philosopher in residence, Jeremy Pierce. What do you, what do you think of the conversation this far? And particularly the, the, the continuing lack of appropriate services for people with developmental disabilities, especially those who have high support needs. 
I, I think one of the biggest reasons right now why if you were to ask them why they're having trouble providing services would be just because of the very nature of circumstances and so on. But but we've we've gotten to a point with students in the classroom now where a lot of those problems are not present because it's not all virtual and things like that. But I mean, it seems to me that there are lots of ways that I mean, just some of the ongoing problems are just worse. <laughs> some of the ongoing problems are just not like the like the staff shortages and the lack of resources being given for special education and things like that are just worse now. There isn't as much funding to go around. There aren't as many staff as, as there even normally would be, and normally it's not sufficient and, and so on. I think also people are so distracted with other things. Hmm. They don't really have a sense that they're, 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 they're trying to they're trying to do what they can to stay afloat with all these other issues that they're how to, how figuring out how to handle the new normal that they're letting slip the things that should have been part of normal before. I like the way that you put that. The things that should have been normal before, part of the normal before are letting slide. They're letting slide along with a lot of other things that they probably shouldn't be letting slide because crisis. We're in a crisis mode. And I get the sense a lot of times that even when people recognize that, oh, this shouldn't happen, this is bad, I get a sense of, of folks are throwing up their hands and going, oh, well, that's just too bad. We can't do anything about it. But the reality is that you're losing a generation. <laughs> you're losing a generation of people when you don't try to figure out how we get out of the crisis. Jeremy, your comments? I think part of the problem is it's, it's, it's not really, it's not like, you know, we know people are, are, are raising these issues and we just can't get to them. I, the sense that I get is they're not even seeing them. Hmm. So I, I don't think they're trying to say, you know, we'd love to do that. We just can't do that right now. I, th I think they're just totally oblivious, a lot of them. They don't really understand the problems before. And so when they're exacerbated now, they're just not on their radar. It's not something that they that they see. So it, it, I, I don't know how that can be so in some of these cases, because the teachers are regularly <laughs> trying to get to administrators to, to see stuff that they're not seeing. So I, I don't know how it is that they can't see it because it's not like no one's telling. Yeah. But we never see anything. I mean, I don't know how many times when we were shut down that teachers would give really good arguments for making exceptions for a student population that is an exception in, in a number of ways. And no one even had anything to say about it. It's not that it's not that um, they had a carefully put together argument about it. They just didn't engage from what I could tell. There and were so many things that I could think of that they could have done with our son and have have more sessions with him with TAs and things like that. But no one ever said a word about why they weren't doing that. 
It just wasn't something that anyone ever said anything about. <laughs> uh, I like to put us in a, in a positive mindset. Uh, we have to have a holistic approach. And I've mentioned many times, we've mentioned many approach about that famous Maslow hierarchy of needs. We've talked about mm -hmm. the needs. Mm -hmm. I think it's not when you're dealing with the politics, you're dealing with the disease of COVID, you're dealing with a year plus shutdown and reactions. And even when the kids were faced with it, they didn't know how to react to no bus coming. Their routines have changed. Unfortunately, the routines have changed even now with schools getting an influx of this COVID again, and some are going remote. So it, it's very, it's not something that you can just put on something on an operating table and, and fix according to a manual. Hmm. Even, if, even if you try, like when Tim Conway tried to do dental services, he had to go to a book, but obviously he shot himself in the foot. Well, he didn't quite know how to handle things. So not that people are shooting themselves in the foot. I don't want to put blame since I don't personally have the experience. It looks like it, but I don't want to play the judge. I think I think part of part of the challenge is having that conversation. And I again I, I say it every time you you bring it up. I love that you've brought up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Because what happens to the conversation about serving people with developmental disabilities? What happens to the conversation about special education services? What happens to the conversation about general education services when you view it through the lens of providing Maslow's hierarchy of needs for students, staff, and families? What happens when the conversation is about helping students and staff feel safe in a classroom? What happens when the conversation is about helping families and, and people with disabilities feel safe in their homes, feel safe in their communities, feel included? Oh, yeah. What happens to the conversation when you start talking, talking about it like you understand what Maslow's hierarchy of needs are about. And we, we talk about this a lot on the show and I love you, Scott, for always bringing it back to that principle. And folks, we will share a link to Maslow's hierarchy of needs so you get an idea of what we're understanding and think about it from your own perspective. When you walk into a place and people demonstrate that you're welcome and that you're safe and protected, and free. What does that do to you? Think about what it does to you when that happens. Think about what it's like when that doesn't happen, when you walk into a place and you don't feel respected or protected or welcome or free. And with that comment, I will wrap up. Thank you everyone for joining us for this conversation on the Life Fantastic podcast, where people with disabilities talk about all things related to life with disabilities. I'm your host, the Idea Dynamo, Samantha Pierce. You can hear us on Straight Independent Radio, straight with an eight, indieradio.us. We are sponsored by neurodiversityconsulting.org and sanchia.org. 
check us out on the web to find out all the great things we do with people with developmental disabilities. Scott, Liza, Jeremy, thank you for taking time to be part of this conversation and to share your experiences and your thoughts about life with disabilities. Folks, we'll have another great conversation for you next time.